When I survey the wondrous cross, I love that song, demands my heart, my soul, my all. As you know for me, I'm, I'm all about the cross. And we live in this world, within this Christian world, where we just, we're all about the cross, we understand the forgiveness of sins, we, we look at that, but does it go any further than that? What truly are the full spectrum, what is the full spectrum of the ramifications of the cross? What's so big about the cross that a song that we just sang like that we should just be in awe and wonder. How do we incorporate the cross into our everyday lives? In many ways, that's what we should be full of. When we come to the cross and the reality of the beauty of the forgiveness of sins, His life for mine, it should impact every aspect of our lives. And I've been asking you last week, I asked you to ask this question, which is the slide here. What is the relevance of the gospel in my everyday life? How, what, what's the big deal with it? I'm going to heaven, got my ticket, okay, that's good enough for me, and you just go on. Well, no. How is it real in my life? What does it look like, and how do I live out the beauty of the cross. We are to live this out daily in our lives. How does the gospel apply to my job? Did you ever think of that? It should. You should think of that daily. How does the gospel apply to my neighbors and the community I live in, to my family and uncle so-and-so who just drives me nuts? The gospel should affect every aspect of your lives. The gospel should affect how you speak, where you go, what you do, how you think. How does it apply? Here I wrote this out last week, and this is something I want to do with my How to Live Out the Gospel Bible. Again, I said, I've got this Bible here. The cover fell off, so we're going to get rid of it. But I thought, no, I can use this Bible, so I put some tape on. And, and I've been going through the, this Bible, and every time I see something in which it says, because of the cross, live this way. Or because of what Jesus has done, this is how you're to live. And then I just highlight it in red and go, okay, this is my gospel Bible. So I've got this. On the next slide it says this. It says, we live out our daily lives where the gospel is central. Applying the truth of the cross, worshiping him in all that we do. In all that we do, worship him. Because of the cross, we worship him. The cross shapes our perspectives on relationships. We've been looking at marriage. How does the cross shape how we live in our marriages? And I, I wrote this out, this, this, I think it's the next slide here. In light of the heavenly reality, the cross, we should just be full of the cross, in light of the heavenly reality, the human relationship is changed. How I act to my wife, to my children, to my parents, to my co-workers, whatever it is, because of the cross, I should be very different than 
Billy Bob Bucktooth down the street. If you have Bucktooth, I'm not picking on you. But <laughs> My life should be completely different. You put me in a room of 10,000 people who don't know the Lord, in five minutes they should say, something's different about this young man here, as some of you call me, young man. So these last two messages that we've been looking at is a purpose of marriage. Not the only purpose of marriage, but a purpose of marriage. In the old and new, the Bible speaks of many aspects of marriage. This is, I would say, one of the primary purposes of marriage. And it's vital that we construct our understanding of marriage through the lens, like glasses, of the Bible. We've been using this kind of illustration before, the lens. It's important that we understand marriage through the lens of the Bible and not interpret scriptures through the lens of culture or society or the way government describes marriage. It's hard because in our contemporary society and culture, there are many distortions. Many distortions when it comes to marriage. Many distortions when it comes to friendships. What it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Our culture just destroys it. Just yesterday, I was at a graduation party and stepped inside. People were just hanging out and the TV was on. I just kind of glanced at it. I think it was the Disney Channel or whatever it was. And there was a little show on. And right away, I'm going, look at how they portray the young boy and the young girl. I'm just like, role reversal here. I was just like, this is crazy. Just all around us, we're bombarded with distortions of how relationships are truly to be. This is how we should understand how relationships are designed to be and not distorted. The difference between the two interpretations, culture and society, and the Bible, are as different as the dark side of the moon or a sunny day on the beach. Completely different. If you don't believe me, find the Disney Channel, turn it on, and you'll see it. And my goal here, and I wrote, said this last week, I long to establish what the Bible gives us as God's design and desire in our given roles. There's a design. For instance, some of you were able to go to the concert yesterday last night, in which Heather played the violin. Don't worry, I'm not going to play the violin for you. But some of you might be, this could be interesting. My wife played for 12 years, was it? No, nine. Keep going lower, lower. Okay, anyways. She played for a few years. It was a piano she played for 12 years. Now, a violin has a specific design. If you take a couple strings off, look at this, right? There's some strings missing. I played the cello, so I'd have to hold it like this. That's how I'm, you know. But if there's strings missing, I can go like this, and I'm missing. And right now, Heather's going, oh, my goodness, please, Pastor Cody. <laughs> there is a certain design. Is this to be a shovel? No. I'm sure if you give it to my young daughter, Gracie, in the backyard, there's a video on Facebook of her and our neighbors just digging a hole. You know, dirt, I love dirt. You know, they're just, she would use this as a shovel. This is not designed to be a a shovel. And the world can come, and you can have a certain note, 
that you play, and that's already, Heather's like, that's not right, so let me try to tune it. And the world's going to tune it, distort it, and it will sound horrible. There is a design and a desire for this right here. And in marriage, there is a biblical design and desire the Lord has for us. And when the world comes and takes strings away and uses this as a shovel or a canoe paddle, which I might use it for, it will be distorted. It won't function properly. You take a couple strings off and can't play many songs on this thing. The world is all about distorting what the design is meant. And in marriage, many of you have allowed the world to come and tune it to their tune. Use it for a paddle. Use it for a shovel. And you got some problems. This violin has some problems. It's missing a few strings and there's some plate in the bottom that's missing right amber that's got to be fixed and it's not going to function properly until it gets fixed by someone who knows what they're doing. Not myself. God has a specific design for us. So here, if you see the next slide, we've asked this question last week. What is the purpose of marriage? Do you ever think about that? What's the purpose of marriage? Last week, we looked at the husband's. I almost wanted to title last week's message, The Value of a Christian Husband. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a Bible in the back, and you just put your hand up, and it's okay to look at your neighbor. In fact, if you're with your spouse, use the same Bible. That'd be okay. This is a famous passage in which I have, when I perform marriages, they ask, please do this passage, read it, or they do the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. This is a famous passage in which people read before a wedding or during the wedding service, the ceremony, and there's a lot of confusion at times about this passage, because this is what most people hear. Ephesians chapter 5, they hear the first few words of verse 22, and then only the first two words of 25. Okay? They hear, look at this, they hear, wives submit, and then they hear, husbands love. And that's all they hear. And then the husbands go, great, I just get to love, here's some flowers, woohoo. Wives, you better submit. That's what the Bible says. And then wives will hear, wives submit, what does that even mean? Husbands love, this doesn't seem fair. Last week we saw that there is a desperate need for men to be men. Amen? There is a truly desperate need for men to be men. But not just men, godly men. We live in a time where we need men of God to rise up. Again, culture has its way of changing that. I asked Allie if she would sing with me, but she's helping in the nursery, and so I won't sing it. She has a better voice than I. Some of you know this tune, and I hope this doesn't get stuck in your head. Here's another Disney. I'm picking on Disney here. Sorry about that. But here's a movie. Have anybody seen Mulan? Okay, some of you. Okay, two of you. Wow, okay, that's, that's all right. Mulan. 
Here's one of the songs. They, they're in this battle encampment. They're getting ready. It's kind of like basic training. Some of you know what basic training is like, so here it is. <clears throat> Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. No one's singing with me. Okay, all right. <laughs> Did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? You're the saddest bunch I ever met, but you can bet before we're through, Mr. I'll make a man out of you. Some of you are mouthing it, so you didn't raise your hand, you little cheaters. Okay. <laughs> Tranquil as a forest, but fire within. So they're kind of dictating here what a man should be. But once you find your center, you are sure to win. You, you're a spineless, pale, pathetic lot, and you haven't got a clue. Somehow, I'll make a man out of you. And then there's, I love this little part where they, all the little soldiers are like, oh, we're going to die. Some of them say this. They say, Am I ever going to catch my breath? Say goodbye to those who knew me. Boy, I was a fool for cutting in, in school for cutting gym. Now I really wish I knew how to swim. And the chorus, be a man. We must be swift as a coursing river. Be a man with all the force of a great typhoon. Be a man with the strength of a raging fire, mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Is this what it means to be a man? Like a typhoon? My wife may think that when I'm in the house sometimes. Like, yep, he's following the song. Have you seen our house and what he can do and just destroy it? What does it mean to be a man? What does it look like to be a man? We are in a desperate time for men to be men. Because men are somehow, like I've said, between a boy and a man. They're somehow stuck. They haven't taking responsibilities they, you know and just they're just a band like i said they're just stuck in the middle and men no longer boys aren't trained to be men anymore they're just trained to be big boys also we started with men last week because take a look at the section here again i said this take your fingers and go this much about women and this much about men over three times of the words are about men to be men And we saw that last week in this passage, there are three in order. We are to love in order. We are to love like Christ. And Christ, what did he do? He died. Men, when it comes to loving your wife, it's not like, oh, I love, they submit. You have to love to the point of death. Are you willing to die? Christ gave himself up for what reason? Three clauses here three in-order clauses to make them to be more holy, to make for us husbands, our goal is that our wives would be more like Christ. That is one of the primary purposes of marriage. So that in your relationship, your wife would be more like Christ. We are to follow the pattern and the goal of Christ. His pattern, giving his life. And the goal so that the church, she would be more like Christ. Again, this is all cross-related, cross-centered. It's all because of the cross. Take a look at the next slide here. Right? This is it. Because of the cross, we worship Him. And out of that, for the men, it is, a, it is to be reflected in our marriages following Christ's pattern of love and goal of being more like Him. So husbands, here it is. Is your wife more like Christ 
because you entered into her life. Is your wife this last week more like Christ because of your investment, your love, and the way you've lived? Men, it's time to become godly men. Or let me just say this because this is a general principle in all of Scripture. Single people, wives, are your friends, are the people that you hang out with, are they more like Christ? Do they know more of Christ because of how you live? If not, it's time to get the spurs on, get on that horse and get moving. Because there's a certain design that God has given us. And it comes down to this. When a husband is captivated, captured by the cross, and loves in this way, and lives and follows the pattern and the goal of Christ, when you have a husband who's all about responding in a loving, submissive way, and caring like Christ, how could a wife not want to submit to that? Amen? How could a wife not say, that's the kind of man I want to be with? And this is all based upon, we'll get this in a moment, the verse that precedes all of this. There's the wife section and the husband section, but it all is based upon 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives, we'll look at your section in Scripture here, which we could have titled The Value of a Christian Wife. But it might maybe sound like the other song that's in the movie Mulan. A bunch of the ladies are getting together and they're getting all their daughters ready and I forget some of the scenes in it, but uh, one of the older women starts singing and says, this is what you give me to work with, and all the girls are just, you know, their hair is all crazy, whatever. Well, honey, I've seen worse. We're going to turn this sow's ear into a silk purse. We'll have you washed and dried, polished. You'll glow with pride. Trust me, a recipe for an instant bride. You'll bring honor to us all. Wait and see when we're through. Boys will gladly go to war for you. That sounds good to me, huh? A girl can bring her family great honor in one way, by striking a good match. And this could be the day. And then the song says, Men want girls with good taste, calm, obedient, who work fast-paced, with good breeding, and a tiny waist, You'll bring honor to us all. It's kind of funny and cute, but just think of this. This is how our kids grow up hearing this junk. Did I just call this junk? Yes, I did. Little do we know that all around us, culture is tuning, mistuning, distorting the violin. What does the Bible say? I say this often and. Hopefully you think this often. Context is everything when you read a Bible verse. If you don't believe me, just turn to Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, and read the little section that says, God, there is no God. Well, the Bible says it, I'm done. Context is everything. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. 
people love just to take a little verse out and just go, here it is, bang, I'm done. Context is everything. So, wives, husbands, culture, when they hear these first two words, oh, how easily we like to throw this up and go, whoa, wives submit. Wives submit. Well, this is a good verse. Context is everything. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I pray a lot before I preach a sermon. I pray for the Lord's anointing. I pray for his words, not mine. But this week I've been praying a lot because this can be a tangly verse. But what? Context is what? Everything. Ephesians. Again, chapter 1. I love chapter 1. Chapter 2 and chapter 3. Paul spells out the beauty of the cross. One of my favorite sections of all of Scripture, chapter 1, 3 through 14. Chapter 2, is, it's got one of the most famous verses. It's not by works, it's by, how are we? It's by grace, through faith. It's not that we work for it. Chapter 3 is beautiful. It ends with a great prayer. Paul is all about the cross. And then chapter 4, take a look. As a prisoner of the Lord then, prison, he's, a, he's in prison, but he's also a prisoner of the Lord. This is all about the cross. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Or this, our conduct must match our calling. You've been called by the beauty of the cross. Now, chapter 4, 5, and 6, our conduct should match that calling. If it doesn't, you better reassess what's going on. And he begins to use some great words of what it looks like. This is all about the cross. Look at verse chapter 1 out of verse, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, here I love this verse here, verse 2, and live a life of love. It doesn't go period, just go love, hand out flowers. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. Because of the cross, we are to love. Very cross-centered. Then let's get a little bit more specific on this passage. It's interesting, when I worked on this passage, there are a few verbs, there are main verbs in this passage, then there's some verses that have no verb. For instance, verse 22, in the the original language, has no verb. Verb. It's dependent upon verse 21. In our Bibles, the word is submit. But in the Greek, it's not a verb. It's a participle. Anybody remember what participle is? You're like, oh my. Okay, Some of you are like, school's almost done. Forget it. I'm checking out. It's a hanging type of verb that hangs on a main verb. And I usually put the, word I in, or the letters I-N-G at the end. Ing. Well, what's the main verb? In fact, context is everything. It goes all the way up to 
verse 18. It's interesting that verse 18, the first part, and then there's this verb, and then the rest of this hangs on what? Verse 18. And this may be a surprise. I even thought about, I should do a whole sermon on this section here. It says this, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Here's the main verb. How many of you want to be filled with the Spirit? Okay? Okay, you're not raising your hand. Just do it. Yeah, I want to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? And many people look at this verse and go, let's be filled with the Spirit, okay? But then you go, okay, well, chapter 1, verse 13 says we already have the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the promise. Okay, what, what, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Lo and behold, there's some verbs that talk about being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 and 20 by worshiping with fellow believers. You want to be filled with the Spirit? It's all about gathering together and worshiping with fellow believers. That's the first part. The second part about being filled with the Spirit? 21. Submitting. Self-denial. Humble service to one another is how you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You ever think of that? That's profound. So many times we hear different types of churches say, well, this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Well, this is what the Bible says. Gather together, fellowship and worship. Second, be filled with the Spirit. How? By self-denial and humble service. Submitting. Submission. What's the third way? How do you be filled with the spirits? The Spirit? Not spirits. Wives? Take this verb and move it down here by submitting. That's profound, isn't it? You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So let's look at 22. In this passage, we have a couple general calls. And I've kind of labeled this under mutual submission. Why? Because of verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of the cross, we submit to one another. Here is a call for all believers, 21 and then into 22, to submit out of reverence. What is the motivation of this submission? Go back to 21. Is it because Pastor Cody said... So don't go home and go, well, you know, Pastor Cody said I need to do this, and here we go. Or is it because I have to? The attitude of duty, I must submit, therefore I will. And you're like a robot. What? No. Here it is. The motivation of submission is the cross. You like how it always comes back to the cross? I do. It's not out of duty, because I would fail. It's not because so-and-so says so, and I must do it. It's because when you're so captured by the beauty of the cross and what he's done for you, you will naturally submit. And there's so many verses that speak of that. Philippians 2. I will give up my will for the sake of another. Think of that. That's what submitting is. I will give up my will for the sake of another. And I, I had to write this down, because some of you have heard the, the culture of the church, maybe. You've been influenced by society when you hear this word submit in the biblical way of submitting. It is not that I'm inferior to others. Hear this. 
but in humility I esteem others higher than myself. Philippians 2, the first five verses. It's not that I'm inferior to you. Whoa, I must beat myself and you're greater than I am. No, it's not that you're inferior, but in humility you esteem others higher than yourself. Submission does not lessen our value or distort or diminish your place in the kingdom. Very important. Here's where I think church history shows the church got this part wrong. Wives submit, we'll, we'll fix that. And the church has messed that up. And for some reason, they have made women feel that they are lesser in value, and they've diminished, and they've distorted women's role and place and design in the kingdom. And that's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, submission confirms our place in the kingdom. Amen? That we are to care for one another and love one another. For me, I put Amber's interest before my interest. A good marriage is dependent on both sides having this attitude. Both sides submit and care and love out of humility because of the cross. Not just we just submit and are humble and care for each other. No, because of the cross. And when Jesus and the cross is number one in my life, and number two and number three, and number four, gladly Amber would submit to a man like that and care and love and look for my interests and needs because I'm all about the cross and I'll be doing the same for her. A great way to serve the Lord and be filled with the Spirit, submit. Isn't that profound? We don't have to go through all these other things. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Submit. This submission is done for the sake of the Lord. Again, let me just say this over and over again. All this stuff about marriage is in light of the cross and in beauty of the cross. We submit to God first. So let me say this to some of you who are maybe in a marriage that's just kind of like, okay, we're not really there yet. Or if you're single and you have the, on your back, I'm single, let's mingle kind of an attitude. Let me say this. First be complete in Christ. Be so complete in Him first. Don't be, I must find the right husband. I must find the right guy. I must find him. First be so complete and content in Him. And you will then be the greatest spouse there is. Amen? Be so satisfied in the Lord and content in Him first. That will make the greatest recipe for a marriage. Submit to God first in all things. If you're single or if you're married. Wives are to follow their husband's godly leadership. This is, this is the tough part here. Look at this. Wives, submit to your husbands. doesn't stop there. As to the Lord. Paul's saying, be so caught up and captivated and just all about the cross, then you'll naturally submit. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. You're already surrendering your heart to the Lord. Surrender your heart to your husband. For the husband 
is the head of the wife. Well, this is a tough one. What do we do with this? I don't know. Let's start again at verse 21. Everyone submits, right? Husbands, do you submit? Everyone? Yes, you submit also. Wives are submitting. And you notice that the word isn't, as in the song that we read before, it's not, wives obey your husbands in everything they say. There's a choice word there. It's not obey. It's submit. It's not give in to your husband, follow him in everything he says, and you are the yes man or the yes woman in this case. No. Follow the leadership of your husband. Yield to him, as we'll see here in a moment, because God has placed him to be the head, the leader. But let me say this on the side. Do not compromise or yield into things if your husband would ever lead you into sin. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. This has to be sanctified in holy ways. So this is not a license for husbands to abuse or lead wives into sin. No, not at all. So this verse 23 is a tough one. The first part, there's mutual submission. So wives know you're called to submit, but so are the husbands. Let's look at 23 here. In this, the next slide you'll see, I've called this biblical responsibilities. And not everyone in Christianity would agree with my understanding of Scripture here. There would be, what I would say, more liberal ways of maybe looking at this passage. I'm a bit more conservative, as you know, in understanding this. But this mutual submission leads to this biblical responsibilities. And there's so much confusion, so much distortion in this, even within the church, I believe. Because we want everyone to be on equal playing field. We want everyone to be right, and it's fair. And our culture breeds this regarding what I see as the wrong way of understanding biblical complementary differences within a marriage. And there's so much ways of understanding femininity and masculinity and just how it's to be done, and and people like just to wipe those completely away. But in this passage, I think we have biblical responsibilities laid out. And these are what I would say are God-given roles. And God-given roles that have been given to you, acknowledge them and live in them. Because you've been designed designed to function that way. And this is very important. Our value is the same. And again, church history, when you look at it, sometimes they messed up in this. Our value is the same, but our responsibilities are different. Very important to know here. Ab and Eve were created both in God's image. It was good. They were equal before God as persons. Yet, they were distinct in their manhood and womanhood. There was a difference. And when it comes to marriage, this 
it's very important that we see that there's biblical responsibilities. And there are distinctions in our different roles that we have. And they are ordained by God as part of the created order. And this all was before sin. Some people say, well, you know, th- th- this stuff is all because of the result of sin, that, that now a man has to be the head and wife's head, you know, this, and they just come up with all these things. And No. This was done before the fall. God created these roles and ordained us to be living this way, way before sin. We do not let culture, we do not let prestige or titles get in the way. And know that the Bible doesn't say, oh, wives, you just need to stay home all the time and you can never get a degree. My wife has a degree from college. Oh, she shouldn't have done that because that's on her role. What? No, it doesn't say that. It's amazing how twisted this can get, right? Adam's headship, his leadership in marriage, was established by God. It was not a result of sin. And a husband here, listen to this. Husbands, they are to reflect the Lord as the wife reflects the church. And that's what this passage is all about. Husbands, you are like Christ and you love and reflect the way Christ loves the church. Wives, you are to reflect like the church. And it's not to be a husband who demands submission. No. That is not the case. So we are equal, yet we have different roles. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is a savior. So husbands, back to you again. A lot of this deals with husbands. It's time to be a man and lead your family into godliness. Does that mean, wives, you have to be quiet and everything that they say is what? No, not at all. We submit to each other. My wife and I, when it comes to decisions, we'll talk about it. We'll pray. We'll discuss it. It's not like, Amber, here's what we're going to do. We're having pizza tonight, whether you like it or not. Because I have decided I'm the head, and I love pizza. We're having fried chicken, and you know what? We're having pizza that's got gluten. You're gluten-free, too bad. God will have to heal you, and we're just going to eat it. No. We submit. We pray. We talk. We discuss. We plan. We talk about schooling and homeschooling and not homeschooling. All this stuff. But in the end, man is the head. And guess what, men? That means you need to get the spurs on and not be passive and whistling and suck your thumb and go, oh, well, we'll just figure something out and okay, let her. Stand up and be a man and lead. Lead people into godliness. But also that means you take the hit too. And that's maybe why some of you are a bit passive because I don't want to take the blame. Be a man and get the spurs on. And lead. God has called you to be the leader. Lead them not in dictatorship ways, but into godliness. I wrote this down. Sin brings many distortions into relationships between men and women. And we see this in the fall. Genesis speaks of it. Women, your role, because of sin, you're going to say, well, fine, I'm going to kind of do this and usurp the throne. And men, you're just going to be like this. In fact, take a look at verse 33 in this passage. Go all the way to the end. It's as though Paul, at the end, kind of summarizes this in saying, all right, men and women, 
you're prone to distort this. You've been given godly principles here and roles to be in the marriage. And you're going to lean to do things differently. Listen to what he says here. He says, however, each one of you also must love his... So he's talking to the husbands here. You must love your wives. Why? Because for husbands, the temptation, I wrote this down, is to be powerful in your position. I'm the boss. Here it is. I'm laying down the law. Paul says at the end, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved. Okay, right. I'm willing to die and give everything and submit and love you. Our temptation is to be powerful in the position, to be dictator-like and lord it over them. Not so with you, Mark chapter 10, Jesus says. Or the opposite temptation today is to be passive and self-absorbed. No. Don't be self-absorbed, but be self-sacrificing and giving to your wives. Men are to move towards godliness, not to worldly love and power, but to have spiritual responsibility and love your wives. The husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domineering mentalities or passivity today in our culture. So husbands, God has appointed you and called you and designed you to be the head. Be a godly man. Verse 33, we see that Scripture is the best way to have a marriage. Between the loving and humble leadership of a redeemed husband, let me say that again, between the loving and humble leadership of a redeemed husband and the willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. What a great recipe of a marriage. Wives, it says here, and wives must respect her husband. Wives, what's the temptation for you? The temptation is to use emotions or assert themselves in a ruling or controlling way or diminish the husband's role to lead the house, lead the home, lead the family. There was a joke that I learned in high school that I forgot until recently. And I, I'm, I do my best to never do ethnic or gender jokes. So this is not a gender joke, but you'll understand this here. There's a line in heaven, and there's two gates. One gate says, men's head of the house, and the other one, the woman wears the pants. Because I, I was like, woman wears the pants? What does that even mean? What is the, you know, they're, they're in charge. They're the ones who rule the house. And someone gets to heaven, and they realize every man is in the, the line that says, woman wears the pants, except for one guy who's head of the house. I said, whoa, what's going on here? He's in line for a while, and he's in the line with women. Was in, she wore the pants. I just gave in to her. And then finally he's like, I'm going to have the courage. So he snuck out of line, went up to the guy, says, man, you're, you're in here, and you were married, and you were head of the house. How come you're here? My wife told me to come here. <laughs> women, resist the temptation to manipulate Use your emotions 
use your ways to reject and resist God's given role to you and to your husband. Respect your husband. Don't limit what God has given you in your role or neglect the gifts he's given you. Don't wear the pants. Let the man place his God-given role. Don't distort the beauty of a marriage. The wife's gifted, willing submission tends to be replaced by one who rules the roost, wears the pants. But women, we are to respect your husbands. Respect his leadership as he endeavors to lead the family into godliness. What wife would not want to submit and follow someone like that? Amen? And again, wives, out of respect, your husbands, but not, this is not a license to follow them into sinful practices or abuse. If there's a wife who's under a husband who's abusing her, I'm first to say, we need to do something about this right now. Because too many distortions come in and so much abuse happens out of this. So let me end with this. The cross sets the tone of a beautiful marriage. The cross sets the tone. And because of the cross, and if you could just maybe write this down, you'll get the notes emailed to you or whatever, but this is the greatest recipe, I believe, for a marriage. Because of the cross, we worship him. Right there it begins, remember? You have to have a redeemed husband and a redeemed wife. Because I firmly believe that those who do not know Christ do not know love. Well, they have a sense of love and they say they love their spouse and love puppies and love flowers, whatever, they love chocolate, but they have no idea what love is. But when you have a redeemed person who knows the beauty of the cross, their lives change and it impacts their marriage. Because of the cross, we worship him. And it is reflected in our marriages following Christ, here we go, his pattern of love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We follow Christ's goal of being more like him. And this is a general call even to all Christians and all relationships. Because of my friendship with you, may you be more like Christ. Because of your friendship with me and your impact in my life, may I be more like Christ. And following God's design, Christ's design of submission. That's the purpose of marriage. If you want a perfect marriage, guess what? It won't happen this side of heaven. Because there's sin and I get selfish and I want my ways and sometimes my wife has five kids not four kids but the more and more the Holy Spirit works in me and sanctifies me because this falls under the umbrella be filled with the Spirit so my prayer for you if you're single that you would be complete in Christ first and content with Him 
until the day if the Lord allows you to get married. And for those of you in marriages, my prayer is this list. You'd follow the pattern of Christ's love and the design He has that you would become more like Christ in our design of submission. Let's pray.